Oh boy, do I have problems. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and prefund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. This week's episode of The Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 203 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Philip Morgan. Greetings. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're going to be answering the question. Ruben actually brought this up. And basically, <laughs> it's how much advice or how much value do you, give, do you give away before you start devaluing your expertise or the value you bring to a project? Do you have some context for us, Ruben? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, basically there's a, there was a discussion at a forum uh, that I'm on online uh, where the question was, uh, someone basically said, listen, I, I was at an initial client meeting, right? And, and many of us, I think, do this where we'll talk to someone either in person or on the phone or on Skype. They hear about us. They want to work with us. And so we have an initial free meeting to see if it'll work out. Then this guy said, basically, you know, I gave away too much. I basically gave them all the advice I was going to. And so was this a mistake? And there was some back and forth about whether this was a mistake or not, to give away advice at an initial meeting. And my feeling was, to some degree, that's okay. I do this all the time, right? When I have an initial meeting, I'm going to talk to the client. And if I can impress them with some, you know, clever advice during the meeting, then fantastic. They're more likely to want to work with me. But it does then mean, hey, I'm working for free. And, you know, why are you going to pay me lots for going forward? So there is that sort of tension. The question is basically, where do you draw the line? Where do you say, you know, from this point on, I'm really going to have to charge you? Well, if you can give away the farm in an hour, uh, I have to say that uh, you probably don't have as unique a selling proposition <laughs> as you ought to. Well, I do talk fast. <laughs> okay, so for Ruben, a half hour. <laughs> or to put it another way, if their problem can easily be solved in an hour of you talking to them, it wasn't that big a problem. You know, I tell people all the time, like my approach for a situation like that is to talk the person out of hiring me. And if I can do that, then it's a good thing because if they had hired me, then they would end up regretting it. Because and, and so when you do that, it. Jonathan, when, when you do that, you basically saying to them, well, have you tried X and have you tried Y? Yeah. And you're giving them solutions or potential totally. solutions. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Why not just wait six months? Why not just gather some more data? Why do this now? Why don't you just use an off-the-shelf solution? Why don't you use Fiverr? Why don't you get someone from Craigslist? You know, and they'll give you reasons why they can't do that. Or they'll say, yeah, that's a great idea, but 
you know, usually they'll say, no, 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 we can't do that because X, Y, and Z. And as you go through that conversation, they tell you why they need to hire you. And then I take that information, I put it in the proposal and I send it back to them. And they're like, yeah, we need to hire this guy. <laughs> I always say like, you know, my mom's a, a sixth grade teacher and she has a lot of, she's very creative. She has a lot of ideas about all sorts of technology things. So a lot of times I get a situation where she's like, I've got an idea for an app. And if she, she's never actually asked this, but if she ever said like, I know you know a lot of iOS developers. Could you put me in touch with somebody because I've got this idea for an app? I'd be like, are you crazy? That's going to cost you like $50,000 minimum to get started with that. You're nuts. And if she said, you know, I'd be like, don't do that. Don't even stop thinking about that because it's crazy. Or I would try and offer some like, you know, I would maybe investigate a little bit and be like, maybe there's a cheaper way to do it. But, you know, if she could say to me, no, 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 I've got investors, the principal and the school system are going to pay for this. I'm not going to pay for it. They all think it's a good idea and it's going to, you know, be this benefit for the school system. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm convinced that, you know, maybe you should talk to some of my iOS friends and I treat my customers the same way. I'm not going to let them pay me a hundred thousand dollars if what they really need is a WordPress plugin, you know, that would be unethical. So, (laughs) (laughs) so if you go in there and, you know, like granted, I'm not having meetings like this, you know, multiple meetings like this every week. I'm pretty picky about who I even bother to have an initial meeting with. Like I'm, you got to weed out the tire kickers and all that. But once you have a meeting with someone, I give away the, everything I can possibly do to help them is what I do. And I do that by trying to talk them out of hiring me. I was just thinking about this leading up to this episode. I can only think of one proposal in the last 10 years that I've had rejected. That's interesting. <laughs> That's amazing. One other thing that just comes to mind is that I've never had a consulting gig where, I, I mean, I've done training where they paid me to just come in and tell them about solutions. But I've never had a consulting gig where they just paid me to come in and talk to them about solutions. They wanted me to implement them all, you know, or the ones that made sense to them after they hired me. You know, be that by working closely with their team that's implementing them or by implementing them myself. And so if I'm telling them how to do it and then they decide that they're going to have their own team do it, you know, that's fine. But the engagement that I'm after is for them to hire me to do it. And if I give them enough information to figure out how to do it again, you know, then I don't have a unique enough proposition for them. But the other thing is, is that if I can explain to them, this is what we're going to do, and this is the outcome that we're expecting to have for you, then that's the value proposition. The value proposition isn't here are some of the guidelines for solving this problem. The proposition is this problem will get solved and it will save or make you money. That brings up an interesting point, which is the nature of that meeting. And perhaps I didn't, re- I didn't, I wasn't in the forum that I didn't read the forum post that, that Ruben's referring to. But in, in one of these meetings that I would be in, I'm not telling them anything. Usually I'm asking a million questions. So it's not like they end up with some like architecture document at the end of it. You know, I'll just be like, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? Did you think of this? Did you think of that? But it's not like, um, you know, in some of those things, they might say, like, this happened recently. I said, I said, there were, People were worried about how they're going to handle a particular situation. And I was like, have you thought of using a, a single site browser wrapper? They're like, what's that? And I described it in about 30 seconds. And they're like, oh my God, that's exactly what we need. And I was like, there <laughs> you go. Like, that's no skin off my back. And the next time they need a clever solution or a simple solution to a, a complex problem, you better believe I'm the one that's going to get the email. And if it's not as simple to 
come up with is me spending 30 seconds describing something that's existed for 10 years, then I'm going to get hired. But I don't, I don't want work from, I don't want like simple, I don't know. Can I, can I give an actual example of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it just came to mind. So I was looking around for some one-on-one coaching. I was thinking, okay, well, who's kind of where I want to wind up and can coach me into getting there? And so I identified a few people, reached out to them. And the person whose organization got back to me was Jamie Tardy uh, from Eventual Millionaire. And she had one of her coaches get a hold of me. And, well, first of all, her assistant called up and asked me a handful of questions and figured out pretty fast that, you know, I didn't need like the basic, here's what a freaking business is kind of training. I was beyond that. So one of their coaches called me up and he said, okay, well, you know, here are the coaching op- options we offer. You can either do one-on-one coaching with Jamie or you can do this other group coaching that will solve these particular problems for you. And those particular problems were things that I wanted to solve. And so I said, yeah, I'm much more interested in this other program. And he said, okay, good. Have you done these things? And he basically walked me through, you know, identifying the expensive problem, you know, and it's just a process that you go through. The book that they recommended was asked by Ryan Levesque. We should probably get him on the show. But anyway, then uh, he also said, and Jamie has these, videos on how to do a beta launch that I'm going to send to you. So not only did I get access to a coach who talked to me for a half hour for free, told me what I need to do as next steps for free and sent me a series of videos for free in order to get me along. But what it did is it it basically set me up so that when I'm ready for this product, I can go buy it and I'm in the right place for it. In other words, when we talk about, you know, positioning, (laughs) this is Philip's wheelhouse. When we talk about positioning, it's like, look, I solve these particular problems for people. But there's no reason why that initial call can't give away a ton of information to get people to the point where they're positioned for your positioning. And by giving away a lot of this other information, sure, I'm not buying their stuff for another month or so because I'm working through these other processes. But once I get to that point, if I get stuck, you can bet I'm going to buy that coaching program. And it's because it sets me up for, okay, I'm at the point where they said that I needed to be in order to take advantage of this, and these are the benefits that they've clearly laid out that I'm going to get now that I'm here. So, Chuck, can you step through that again and kind of tell me what your your trust meter, which goes from 0 to 100 on the International Standard Trust Calibration System, <laughs> uh, where was it at each, each one of those steps? So... I would say that I probably was at, you know, 40, 50 on a scale from zero to a hundred, just starting out because I had lis- I've been listening to Eventual Millionaire for a while. And, uh, you know, so I knew who Jamie was. I know enough other people who know her to where I've actually met her too, but I don't know her well at all. But just from listening to her and talking to some of my friends who know her, I know that whoever she's having, you know, talk to people are going to be top-notch people. And so, you know, I kind of had that trust already just because of content marketing or content. But, you know, after talking to the assistant or whoever that called me up, you know, I was probably a little bit, but not a whole lot higher. But after talking to that coach that gave me all that information and said, these are the steps you need to be taking right now, and that'll set you up for the kind of success that you want. And then if you get stuck, then the course is for you, you know, at that stage. Then it was like 80, 90 out of 100 because I feel like, okay, they understand the issue well enough to say, here's how you get ready to win, and then you can buy the step-by-step on how to win. Mm, That's really interesting to me. 
I mean, I, I, I've been kind of listening and trying to formulate a sort of devil's advocate question like, you know, what about this? What if you sell strategy, right? And pretty much all you're selling is ideas and planning. Is that a case when you should hold back and not give things away for free? And that, you know, question kind of fell apart based on what Jonathan was saying earlier, because really, if in a couple hours of conversation that you might have before you submit a proposal, if you can solve the problem in that amount of time, then it's not a very, if you can really truly solve it, it's, I don't think it's that big of a problem, is it? So I just, I just haven't been able to come up with a <laughs> devil's advocate position here, even though I've been trying. It's the, the application of the strategy is where everybody gets hung up. Like if you can DIY based on a couple of, you know, a couple of ideas that a consultant gives to you in a free one hour sales call, then you don't really need their help, you know? And, yeah. and like, yeah, maybe, yeah, you gave them a lot of value and they're going to remember that. And if they ever need you, they're going to call you or they'll recommend you to other people. But. I mean, Philip, the whole concept of content, my educational content marketing is giving away these ideas for free, right? The thing of it is that you, even if you're specifically speaking to a very targeted focused market, like, you know, for me, software developers, like a lot of people have a really hard time connecting the dots with certain things and they need their handheld. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people pay me for my attention. So mm-hmm. like, Apply attention to their problem. Like they right. say, okay, I know we totally buy into all this stuff. We get it. It makes perfect sense. But we just can't see the force for a tree. Like we can't apply it to ourselves. And I mean, the hilarious thing is I can't apply it to myself either. My own stuff, I can't apply to myself. It's impossible. <laughs> so like I recognize when I'm making a mistake, but it doesn't help me actually craft a headline a lot of times where I need to get outside feedback. It's really, really hard. So if you have someone who's going to benefit from that and someone who gets it, like your, your ideal customer is the one that totally trusts you and gets that what you're saying is true and they're just going to do whatever you say. Just please tell us what to do. That's where the, you know, I almost said the meter starts running. That's when they start paying you, you one, know, when you're actually giving them some real help. One other thing that I want to bring up on this is that, you know, we've said, well, if the problem is so easy that you can solve it by telling somebody how to do it in an hour is too easy. But that's also somewhat specific to the market that you're dealing with, right? I mean, if I go in and I say, okay, well, you need to set up a Linux server and you need to install this open source software on it, and I tell you guys that that's the solution, you guys are going to go, okay, and you'll go do it. But if it's a solution that's going to solve problems for a non-technical person, a dentist or an accountant or somebody, then I go in and I say, this is how you solve this problem. You set up a Linux server and you install this open source software on there, and all of a sudden they're going to pay you to do the implementation because it's well beyond them and they don't understand the concepts behind it other than this software works this way and solves my problems this way. And so it's not just the argument, it's not just the solution, but it's also the customer that you're dealing with. Yeah, my my 13-year-old daughter, I mean, I've said since she was tiny that she should go into engineering and it'll be a crime against humanity if she doesn't because from the time she could sit up, she was building these castles out of magnetic blocks and things. And sure enough, many years later, now she's like, oh, but I don't want to go to high tech, but I do help all of my friends with their phone and computer problems. And I say to her, well, why do you do that? She says, I just don't understand. It's so obvious and it's so easy. Why can't they figure it themselves? And I said to her, welcome to consulting, right? Like, <laughs> I, and then they're like, I go somewhere. And for me, these solutions are really obvious because I've seen the problem so, so many times. And to them, they wouldn't even know where to start, where to start thinking about the problem. And that's where the value is. And so even if I tell them what the solution is, they don't know enough to implement it, to execute on it, 
or quite frankly, they don't remember enough of it because so much of it is so new that they can do anything with it. So very often I'll go and have an initial meeting. I'll say, you should do X, Y, and Z. They say, great, you're hired. We have a second meeting. I say, you should do X, Y, and Z. They say, oh, we're so glad we hired you. <laughs> right? Now, no, nothing has changed except that on the second meeting, they're, they're paying me to say the same thing. And then, right, as Chuck said, often they want me, generally they want me to help with the implementation, not just tell them what to do. Yeah. The, the other thing to keep in mind is that even if you give me a solution that I can implement, so for example, you say, well, if you use these three or four libraries in your Rails app and they'll solve your problem, I may not have time to do it. And so I may be willing to pay you to do it just because you have more expertise in the area and because I don't have the time or inclination to do it, even though I'm capable. So, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons why people hire you. So by going in and actually giving away the farm, so to speak, by giving them the answer, it seems to me that it really boils down to uh, the value that you bring. And this is Jonathan's stick, right? You know, that value-based pricing. So if it's something that I know I can do in a half hour, then it doesn't have a lot of value to me to pay you to go do it. But if it's something that I don't have the half an hour to do, or I don't have the expertise to do it at all, so for me to figure it out would take an astronomical amount of time or effort, then the relative value to me is much higher. And so it really does come down to that value proposition. And if the value is just the idea, then you have a very poor value proposition most of the time. Let's put a pin in this for later. What do you think about proprietary, you know, sort of intellectual property? But maybe, Jonathan, you were probably going to just tag on the what Chuck I was going to ask a similar, I was going to ask you a question, actually. So I think that, I mean, if we're talking about proprietary intellectual property, like, I don't know what, like, like what? Like, I'll have insights and I'll write about them. And, you know, it happens to anybody who's creating content on the web. Other people rip it off verbatim. And I just can't find it within me to give a crap about that. <laughs> so I, I had a meeting. I, I had my end of year meeting with my accountant when we went over the books for my company. And as I, as I often say, this is the time each year when I know how my clients feel because I'm like, oh, my God. This is like watching paint dry. I can't, I, I have no idea what he's saying. I'll just say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'll sign on the dotted line at the end. And at some point he said, wait, you're doing all this teaching. You must have materials, right? I said, yeah. He said, you are making sure to register those for copyright, yeah? I said, not really. He said, oh my God, you are crazy. This is such amazing content and it's valuable to companies. I'm going to put you in touch with a lawyer and you're going to like sign up for copyright because otherwise people could rip off your stuff, your methodology. I'm thinking to myself, I don't care, right? Like my my stuff is not that valuable without me. I know, and, and yeah. so like I just never bothered. I never called that lawyer at all. I am literally racking my brain trying to think of a situation where, like, I, I have this page you can see at trustvelocity.com, and I mean it's somewhat Phillips intellectual property, right? It, it's not like that amazing. It's not secrets to build a nuclear reactor or something. It's it's just kind of a different take on lead generation when you look at it from the, the perspective of how well lead generation techniques do to build trust, right? So it, it's a fairly simple example of intellectual property. And I just, I'm like, okay, so somebody downloaded this and then used it in selling their own services. How does that harm me? I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is just kind of do you look at the world as as a uh, zero sum game, or do you look at it as you know if you create new value, you're going to get rewarded for doing so, even if it's not a direct path that you can trace from creating the value to getting paid? Yeah, I don't I've know. Got the, I'm, I've got the answer. Pretty squishy to this. here. 
Yeah, and I'd love to hear it, man. Lay it on answer, me. The answer is if somebody rips it off and they trademark it, and then you can't use it. Okay. So they come back and then they file a trademark claim saying you're using my intellectual property. Right. Okay. That would sting. That would hurt. That would hurt my sense of justice and my sense of pride about creating this thing. And yeah, would, and, it, have, would it have a meaningful effect on your business? No. Probably, probably not. not. It wouldn't be worth paying the lawyer in the first place, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. like, what? I, I just can't bring myself to care. It's like, yeah, it does sting. I mean, it happened to me recently that somebody, I joined somebody's email list and they had literally copied and pasted something, you know, like a, it was, it was one paragraph out of an entire email, but it was clearly mine. Mm. And they sent it back to me. And it's someone I've met in person. Mm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I was like busted, but I couldn't, like, what was I going to say? Like, I just couldn't, I could not bring those bad vibes into the world. It's like, look, dude, if you, if that's, if that's what you need to do, then that's what you need to do. I'm not going to make a big stink about it. I mean, I'm saying this myself. I didn't say anything to him. And I know in, you know, Philip and our, our mastermind, this has happened to a number of people in there. Like people who are, a lot of people who are putting out original content and insights freely and I want to say vociferously, but that's not the right word. Uh, but <laughs> just like putting it, yeah, just putting out a lot of free, insightful information and, you know, breaking new ground. And people just like totally still, they just don't even care. And I'm like, I don't know. I just see it as cost of doing business on the internet. It's like, that's the flip side. So yeah, I mean, uh, if you don't like, if you don't like, like operating in that space, I mean, hell, a great way to uh, prevent that from happening, I suppose, is to not operate in a text format, operate in video or audio formats. It's really hard to rip that off. Mm-hmm. Point. Yeah. But as far as giving away proprietary stuff, I mean, you know, when you write it or record it, it's copyrighted, you know, so that's all protected by U.S. law anyway. So if you're in the U.S., the other area that I see, you know, because trademarks, whatever, you know, that's that's your brand name and things like that. And, you know, you don't even have to register a trademark to use it. And if somebody else comes into your space and starts using a similar trademark, then you can fight them even without registering the trademark. And I'm not a lawyer, you know, but I... I studied uh, intellectual property law for a while. The other area is uh, trade secrets. And if you own the trade secret, then obviously you can talk to other people about it. Of course, then it starts to cease to be a trade secret. You cannot give away other people's trade secrets, though. So if you work for a client, they're do something, doing something novel that gives them a business edge. That's a trade secret, and you can't give it to your other clients. So that's the only caution I really have on this discussion is that, you know, you can't give away other people's trade secrets. Which, regardless of what the law says, it's a pretty slimy thing to do. It's true. But, you know, at the same time, I think sometimes we get in there, we see them doing something novel, and we don't consider that it's a trade secret. Yeah, you kind mm. of forget. Okay, fair enough. So, actually, I got a question for Philip, which is, are you a fan of content upgrades, and how does that relate to this, if at all? I think content upgrades are great. I mean, for the folks at home, we're talking about... You create some kind of content that's free in the clear. Maybe it's a blog post and there's a related piece of content. You have to opt in. You being the viewer of this content have to opt in to an email list to download or, or access. And I think it's great. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of this more from the perspective of how you can market your services and, and build your list. And I, I think it's a fantastic way to do that because it sort of lets people self-select into, you know, this is worth opting in to learn more about. So, you know, and I have an example. Um, I have a 
a blog post on my website called The Minimum Viable Funnel. And it's just a very sort of, it was very hastily written, to be honest, but just a sort of a overview of how you can set up a marketing funnel in a way that's very minimal, but also effective. And I have a content upgrade on that. And what, what you're opting in to get is a PDF, like a one-page PDF that overviews this system. So it's not anything different, really, than was provided in, in the content. It's just a, a more convenient way. It's sort of a, sum, a visual summary of it. And so I don't feel like I'm holding back any important insights in that content upgrade. I feel like I'm giving freely, which is my inclination when it comes to marketing. And also, I think, is a wonderful way to build trust. Reference the example. I mean, that's why I asked Chuck about his uh, trustometer as he went through that experience with Jamie Tardy stuff is, is I think that's what it does. I think it builds trust because it demonstrates expertise. So anyway, I don't know. Is that a good answer, Jonathan? I, generally, I'm a fan of them. Obviously, it depends on the implementation, but I think they're a good way to, it's sort of a nice win-win. Yep. That answers it. I, I keep hearing that, you know, content upgrades are a fantastic thing to do on your blog to you know, get opt-ins. It hasn't quite worked for me, but I haven't really pushed on that very hard. But I keep hearing it. So my guess is that my small experiments are not worth it. But once again, it's a matter of giving away your expertise, giving away your knowledge so that people will see what you do and who you are and that it's worth doing business with you. And the number of people who have come to me, I mean, I've mentioned in the past, I think we all have that speaking at conferences, I mean, what's that if not giving away your ideas for free? I mean, you get paid to speak, but it's not. Well, sometimes. You're not I don't always get paid. Oh, but that's true. I mean, sometimes you'll do it as a pure marketing thing. So, yep, that's true. I mean, the pushback that I got on that was, um, in this forum was, well, there, you know, in, in a, uh, stuff you're doing on your blog, stuff you're doing at a conference is to a large public. So it's sort of adding people to your potential marketing funnel. It's not giving away your expertise for free one-on-one. -on -one. And I can sort of see the difference, but it's not a 100% clear line to me at all. No. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's, I mean, in any sort of activity that is going to result in you having a new client or a new lead, I'm always thinking about quality. Does the way you designed it actively screen out clients who would be terrible clients or leads who are never going to spend money on you eventually? And so I'm, I'm always okay with, you know, doing things in a way that kind of screens out these bad fit prospects, but I know that some people are kind of terrified by that idea. They're like, oh, I need to maximize my list growth or I need to maximize the number of clients I get. So I, I guess that's a contextual thing we should call out is, you know, if you if you give away your your advice in a one on one confidential consultation with a potential client and then they run away and do something with that, what kind of client would they have been? <laughs> if they had yeah. decided to hire you, uh, probably a penny pinching, you know, not very fun to work with client. I was totally thinking that exact thought when Chuck was talking about the eventual millionaire screening process that here's a bunch of homework for you to do, Chuck. And Chuck saw it as, oh, wow, all this free assistance. And I saw it as if Chuck isn't going to follow through on the work, we don't want him anyway. So because he's just going to turn into a refund or someone bitching about how we're not worth the money, you know, online, not that Chuck would do that, but you, know, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I think we all know people who have class or know people who give these sorts of classes and coaching and the amount of effort it takes to deal with problem customers is high. It's like very emotionally and it's just draining from a stress level, from an emotional level. It's not even worth it. You just like, you know, when, when I would get people who would 
send like cranky feedback about one of my books, I would immediately just send them 20 bucks. It's like, I'm not even going to respond to this email. Here's your 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. It's not even worth it to me. So, you know, it's like, you know, when you can tell they're just not going to please someone. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm getting off the, off the topic, but to Philip's point, if you are desperate for work, and you go into one of these meetings and they say, wow, thanks, that we're all set now, see ya, then yeah, it's going to take you off <laughs> because you're desperate for the, for the work. But it doesn't change the fact that they didn't really need you that much. Maybe they needed you a little bit, but if, if they needed a, an hour of your help, like what are you going to do, retroactively charge them 100 bucks? Big deal. You know, it's, it's like really... I, feel I like once it's had more something better. almost kind of like that, where there's this company where I'd given them some database advice over the years, and the staff completely turned over, and I get a call one day from like the head, uh, the new head of the database group, saying we really could use your help. And it was, it sounded to me like it was going to become a long-term engagement. And so I ended up going there and talking to them for an hour or so, and actually giving them like a bunch of ideas, thinking, oh, this will lead to more stuff. And it then was sort of clear it wasn't. So I said to the guy, okay, and where do I send the invoice? He said, oh, just send it to me. And that was that, right? It was very clear to him that I had given them something of value and I should be paid for it. And it wasn't even a question in his mind. Interesting. And I never heard from them again. So kind of thing. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, and on the, uh, like, potentially bad client front. I mean, I just was speaking to someone over the last few weeks where it sounded on paper like, wow, this could be an amazing client for me and my employee. And also it's a great stuff. And I see how much, I mean, uh, from the way he was describing his business, it sounded like they make lots of money. And then he said, oh, it's going to cost that much. Like this was just the initial discussion. Oh, I don't know. I'll just find someone online to do it for $500. And at that point I realized, okay, this is like, this is just not going to work. It's not worth my chasing him down. I send him a contract. I said, you want to hire us, you know, let me know when it's good. And strangely, I have not heard from him since then. So, right, if I had spent lots of time giving lots of advice and going over lots of things, I would have been really upset. But that I reminds, gave him something. That reminds me of the pitch. So the, this is what I'm talking about. What we're all talking about is not a pitch meeting. So I don't know if that's what this person in the, in the room did, but I'm 100% against pitches where somebody comes up to you and says, hey, especially if you're a designer, Hey, uh, we're, we need a, a branding redesign done. We're going to send out an RFP we'd, uh, to 10 people. We'd like you to put together a deck and put together, you know, your best ideas on how you would do it and then come in and present them in a, you know, essentially a dog and pony show where you're in kind of combative situation between you and other firms. I wouldn't do that ever. That's crazy because then you're actually, you're actually doing work and then you're proposing it. And then only if they like it, do you get paid? Is that the way it works? Yeah, basically, you know, oh, like you get the gig, you know, if, uh, and I think it boils down to, I think the difference between that and what I typically do is that there's no, in my situation, there's no direct preparation for the particular client. Like I keep myself sharp and my skill, you know, I keep myself up to date in general and all of my clients benefit from that more or less equally. You know, it, it's just part of my job to keep up to date on, you know, the latest developments and how those developments might apply to any of my individual customers. And when I get a, a new prospect, I don't do, I mean, I'll, I'll do some homework about their company. Like, you know, what do they do? Where do their customers come from? How big are they? What kind of cars the CEO drive, et cetera, et cetera. I'll find out whatever I can. I'll do some homework, but you know, that takes 15 minutes. And then I get into a phone call with them. And I haven't really prepared anything specific for them at all. You know, I haven't certainly spent hundreds of man hours putting together an advertising campaign, you know, a demo advertising campaign. I basically just, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be 
I'm going to try and deliver as much value as I can in that meeting, uh, usually by challenging their premise, not usually by giving them answers to anything, but really just asking smart questions. And that's a very different thing than going into a situation where you're basically one of 10 or 12 people who are pitching a thing and you have to spend, you know, 48 hours with no sleep over the weekend with three of your staff putting together a deck. So Monday morning, you can sweatily run into a skyscraper elevator and go, you know, and like run, <laughs> hopefully get the gig. No way. I, hopefully that's not just. Yeah, I just like picture that Mad Men scenario where like <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. That's right. <laughs> so here's an interesting thought experiment. What would be the cost uh, or the damage to Kentucky Fried Chicken if their spreading their secret recipe was published online? Probably nothing. I think very little. Yeah. yeah. Right. This American Life did that. I think about two years ago, three years ago, where they found what they believed was the original formula for Coca Cola, like <laughs> some notebook. And so, first of all, they traced through, like, is this really it or not? And they basically came to the conclusion, yeah, it probably is, or it's really close, even though it's probably been tweaked since then. And they went to a place that does custom soda flavors and had them manufacture this. They were like, yeah, that's pretty close. And basically, they, they said, it does not matter. Because what you're buying when you drink Coke is not that formula. It's so much else, so much more. Yeah, and it's convenience, and it's done for you. It's there. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what if I, if someone could make, you know... KFC chicken at home. What, what if another restaurant got a hold of it? Then they would be, you know, they'd have no differentiation other than price. And that would be a race to the bottom situation against someone who's already pretty close to the bottom. You know, I just, <laughs> again, maybe I'm setting up straw man argument here, but I just cannot think of a situation where that would be all that damaging to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, again, I mean, unless if somehow they were banned from using their own recipe is the only thing I can think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that'd be pretty hard to pull off. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, just, I'm grasping for straws here. I, yeah. I, I just don't see, like, you know, what is it? Information wants to be free, right? I mean, it's not, it's just, you just can't fight it. Like, trying to fight information sharing in the, the modern world is just a terrible way to spend your time. It's just total value destruction, you know? It is like, like pushing a rope. <laughs> oh, man. It's just, there's just, Yes, that sting when you feel it stinks. Get over it. Just move on. Just, you know what I mean? Like keep, create something new. Let them try and rip that off. It's all, it's almost like the people who are ripping you off will never be your competitors. It's kind of ironic. They'll never be your competitors. <laughs> Interesting point. Yeah. I mean, from a positioning perspective, one of the best positions you can own is, is being a leader in, you know, whatever sandbox you choose to play in. And, you know, Thought leadership is not, as I've probably said before on this show, not like going on medium and writing your opinions about something. It, it usually involves research and stuff that takes real work to create. And it, you know, it sucks to see your thought leadership being imitated or copied, but I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think anybody really, anyone who is seeking the value behind that is going to go to the source of that thought leadership, not to the imitators. I mean, I think about like fashion ripoffs. The person, the only one with a good ripoff who knows is the person who wears it. But if they can afford the real thing, you can be sure they're going to spring for the real thing. Right. I mean, my, my books are available stolen as PDFs online, but I don't care because I don't care about the money that I'm making from the book. I care that my name's at the bottom of it. And then mm. when somebody wants me, somebody wants 
really expensive help, they're going to call the person who wrote it, you know? And I guess if somebody put their name at the bottom of my book, like, it would be hilarious. It would be hilarious <laughs> to imagine that person getting a phone call and, and trying to pretend like it'd just be absurd. You know what I mean? They would just immediately be discovered as a fraud. Yeah, I tend to agree. So, you know, so, I'm sorry, I was, I was going to take this a slightly different direction, just a, a tiny tangent. It's very popular for people who are kind of more in the info marketing end of the space to kind of publish a lot of details about their business at the end of every year. You'll see a lot of folks publish a, a sort of year-end report. They'll detail how much money they made, you know, from which product lines and so forth. Is that something you guys would like to talk about? I'm kind of curious if you have opinions about that. I find it to be kind of weird. Hmm. I mean, I, mean I, I guess it's meant to be inspirational, right? Because a lot of these people are doing it to say, I've done this and you can do it too. And you see it from people who are helping consultants, helping businesses. Hmm. So it's meant to be like, look, I, you know, I started from zero. I built this up. If you follow my advice, you too can be making this much. So I sort of get it from a marketing perspective. But um, first of all, I think my family would kill me if I did that. <laughs> but, second, but, but, but second of all, I don't know if that really contributes so much to my value of the person or, or how much I be believe they're actually good at what they do. Yeah. I find that I have to do it a little bit. Or I had to do it a little bit when I started doing coaching because for so like, when I started doing coaching, it was kind of like, well, who cares what this guy has to say? I might be doing better than he is. You know, so if somebody's reading my page and they're like, okay, but this has no context without knowing how much Stark makes because I know how much I make and I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And I've had more than one person say to me that if I hadn't mentioned, you know, roughly what I'm making in a year, they would have just assumed that we were doing roughly the same. And I think that since I've only been doing coaching for, you know, less than a year, I think that eventually I'll be able to replace that with success stories from students mm -hmm. and be like, this person went from, you know, it, it wouldn't have to be like, oh, making a, you know, third of a million dollars a year or whatever. It'd be like, you know, this person went from a hundred grand per year to 250 grand per year working less, fewer hours. And then I can sort of pull my, my own yeah, it feels so braggy, you know what I mean? But without that, so I don't like it. I don't like doing it because it feels braggy. But it's kind no, of... I, I, I see what you've written, Jonathan. I, I see what you've written, and I, I actually don't think... I mean, I think that fits exactly the niche that you're describing there, right? Like it says, I actually know what I'm doing, and I, I want to help you do it. But it's it's not like... I mean, or I think I was thinking of was these people say, well, for my books, I earned this, and for my podcast, I earned this, and from my coaching, I did this. Like that sort of breakdown just strikes me as a little over the top. Yeah, I agree. I definitely have mixed mixed feelings about it. I mean, it's all about the intentions, and I understand the marketing value of it. So I am sort of on the fence about that as well. I've never done it myself, but uh, yeah, I can see I can see the role it plays. I'm kind of in the same boat too. I mean, yeah, the people I see putting those kinds of reports out are Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas, and you know, they're trying to inspire people to go out and do interesting things in their own businesses and so they're putting the numbers out there saying hey go for it you know this is what's possible but i don't know i just <laughs> I, I have trouble getting there myself you know i think if people wanted to know the numbers i don't go out of my way to protect that information at all like i don't care if people know how much i make but at the same time i don't know 
I think it is pretty important for the end user when they're consuming the sort of fire hose of information that's available to them for, you know, making their business better. I think it's pretty important. You know, if we're talking about business, you know, this is a freelancer show, right? We're trying to talk about how people can be better freelance, make more money, have a stronger business, that sort of thing. I mean, it's bottom line, it's all about money. So it doesn't make sense to talk about money. So I have found in certain situations when deciding, let's say, what to do next, like how I'm going to do what product I want to focus on doing next, that it's super helpful to know the roughly the order of magnitude that you can hit with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I can roughly guess, you know, how, like how long would it take me to put together a video training course? I could get that right down to like almost like an exact number. It was going to, you know, if the video is going to be this long. It's going to take me this long. If I do the launch right, how much money could I make from this? And I've talked with people who haven't shared the numbers publicly or, or I'm not sure if they've shared the numbers publicly or not, but in private conversations, I've had people give me, you know, share that kind of information with me and it has it has dramatically affected the types of things that I decided to do. Hmm. So I think it's definitely useful, but if the question specifically is, do you think it's a good idea to sort of just willy-nilly share it with the internet at large it's kind of hard to see why i'm not how did now how, how do we tie this back to the is that part of giving away intellectual property for free i mean in, i think in a way it is it, it felt related to me because there's this sort of idea that a, a business model could be somewhat proprietary i think of course you see that more so when there are lawyers on this on the staff of of the company in question <laughs> but i feel like for a lot of us freelancers how we generate value is the business. And I mean, I guess that is any business, so that's kind of dumb. But I think sharing how you generate value and that sort of order of magnitude difference that you were talking about, Jonathan, between different ways of generating value when implemented well is such valuable information that it should be shared because it, it stands to benefit so many people. So yeah, it's not I guess zero that's sum. The said, yeah, it's, it's not zero sum. Right. So it's like I've had maybe... Five. I mean, if you count coaching students, I've had maybe 10, God, I can't, I don't even know, fewer than 20 customers in 10 years. Like I could never, if someone could copy my shtick a hundred percent, go for it. I will never <laughs> be able to service. I'll never be able to service all the customers. Tell me, let me know that you're doing the same thing and the people I can't handle I'll send to you. It's like, I, I it's just, the world is so big. That if you're I, doing something really specific, like who cares? Like then everybody is better off. Right. Like, I mean, the, the big, you know, giant billboard caveat to that is if you are essentially, if your services are a commodity, if they're a replaceable commodity, that doesn't, that math doesn't apply to you. Yeah. Because well, someone will go on Upwork and find a basically identical substitute. So I think that's why we're all so big on, you know, getting out of that commodified position by finding something where you generate unique value. Yeah, be an expert at something. Yep. Right. Well, that was quite a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Anything else before we go to picks? I think we said a lot of the subject already. I feel like smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was good. I, I mean, I feel like we touched on a lot of the issues there. And I mean, I just I want to say to whoever was kind of representing that viewpoint we were all piling on against, I, I really tried to come up with a 
you know, a, a sort of devil's advocate position. And I just can't figure out why it would be worth, like Johnson said, why would it be worth even worrying about who gains access to what information and does what with it? It's not like we haven't all benefited wildly from people doing the same thing for us. Yeah. Well, let's say, okay, you know, I, I know we're going to finish up, but like, how about this? Maybe it's a matter of negotiating leverage, right? In terms of pricing, that if I go to a potential client and I have a meeting with them and I give away the farm for an hour in terms of everything I know, which if I can squeeze into an hour, we're doing okay. Then maybe they say, well, he gave me all that information for zero. Thus, I don't have to pay him that much. I think that might be the fear. Yeah, no, no, I don't buy it. My attitude on this is heavily predicated on the, on the notion of value pricing though. So if in that conversation you haven't revealed to yourself and to the customer that there's a, a very expensive problem that you're uniquely qualified to solve, then there's no gig anyway. And if you have demonstrated to both parties that there is an expensive problem to solve, there's going to be a rough dollar amount associated with that. Or they're gonna, there's going to be an urgency or an importance associated with that in the customer's mind. And you're going to have a rough idea what that is. And if it's a big number, then you can charge a fraction of that big number and they will run to send you a check. Mm -hmm. So I I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. If somebody is just constantly been burned by this, you're attracting the wrong kind of customers. You're attracting terrible customers. So you might want to talk to them about positioning yourself or something. But if you're getting these penny pinchers all the time, all the time, you know, it's time to start looking at yourself and maybe not thinking that every client on earth is a total jerk because they're not. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's end on that. Let's do some picks. Uh, Reuven, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I've mentioned a bunch of times in the past, I have this, uh, email list, uh, Mandarin Weekly for people who are learning Chinese. And I've been playing with different experiments to try to expand that list. Uh, I did some advertising. I've done some sharing in different ways. Um, so the latest thing I'm trying is, uh, something that you've probably heard of called King Sumo for giveaways. And um, it's not quite as easy to install as they would have you believe on the website, but it's it's not too bad. I mean, it, it works great if everything under you know un- under the hood is working great, I guess. And the idea is basically you can set up these giveaways where you've probably seen them on different websites. Normally, a, a giveaway is you enter and then you have a chance to win, and the more people enter, the fewer chances you have to win. The idea though is right with King Sumo, I enter. And then I tell my friends and they get that sort of magic URL and then I get more chances to win because my friends have shared it. So I've been playing with it on my list for the last week or so. So far, not spectacular results, but not terrible and um, definitely worth looking into. And I'll maybe I'll report back here in the next uh, few months about how well it worked overall. But uh, definitely worth looking at. All right, Jonathan, what are your picks? I've got two picks. The first one is Google Keep. Uh, and it is kind of like Evernote, but much, much simpler. So it saves fewer features, does less. Uh, but for what I was looking for, it's so far, it's turned out to be pretty perfect. And what I was looking to have it solve for me was to organize my notes. Now, I've tried a bunch of different note taking solutions, including, you know, taking notes directly into an iPad with a stylus and all that. And I just can't get away from using like my nice fancy pen on a nice, flat notebook. I just, I, I just like taking notes with a physical pen and paper, but I hate everything else. Like after the capture phase, they're a nightmare, you know, organizing them, finding them quickly later, et cetera, et cetera. So the other day I looked around for an Evernote competitor because I don't, I'm not a fan of Evernote 
and found Google Keep and it's working perfectly for me. So what I do is take my notebook and after I'm done taking notes, like say for the freelancer show or with a coaching student or something, I just take a picture of the piece of paper with my phone and it saves it to Google Keep. I can tag it with freelancer show whatever, you know, picks or whatever, whatever I want to tag it with. And then later I can just tap on the tag and immediately have the notes that are relevant to, you know, those current contacts right in front of me. I can just read the pictures. So I don't go nuts trying to transcribe or anything like that. Just when I'm on a phone call, I want to refer back to my previous page of notes, maybe two pages back. And I just boom, boom, boom comes up immediately. And it works on iOS, Android and desktop, which was very important to me. Uh, syncs very quickly in the background. So, so far, I'm really, really liking it. And of course, it's free. Uh, so Google Keep, I think, is really cool to look into if you want to organize your notes. And related to our conversation today, I'm doing a free webinar. As we record this, it's tomorrow, but uh, there'll be a recording online after the fact. Uh, so by the time you hear this, there'll be a recording on Crowdcast of a, uh, of me doing a webcast on writing proposals and a huge piece of writing a proposal is, at least for me, is having that conversation before you write it, having a, a value conversation before you write the proposal. And that's what leads to an incredibly high close rate. So if you're spending time writing proposals and they're ultimately, you have a terrible close rate, you're essentially wasting all this time writing bad proposals, uh, then you might want to check that out. And I'll link to that in the show notes. All right, Philip, what are your picks? I've got three picks this week. We mentioned in passing a new thing that I've set up, which is this website, trustvelocity.com. And I'd encourage folks to check it out if you wish you had more leads coming in the door or the leads coming in kind of suck. Um, this, this is a way to look at various lead generation techniques based on how well they develop trust with these new leads. And I think that's, to me, that's just like the key. That's what makes something like over in the side channel here, we're discussing a contest and contests can be good leads for certain types of products, but you know, for other types of products, they would not be great leads. So, you know, differentiating between those different approaches, I think is, is really worth doing in developing a good lead generation strategy. And so I would recommend that you check out trustvelocity.com for more on that. When second pick, when when people start selling some kind of info product, they tend to gravitate towards a platform called Gumroad, which has a lot going for it and some things not going for it, I think. <laughs> so I wanted to recommend a alternative to that. If you're concerned about Gumroad for any reason, uh, send owl. It, it literally is the word send followed by that, you know, OWL, that ferocious bird <laughs> that hunts on small animals. Um, Sandal.com is really, really a nice, uh, I think it's a step up from Gumroad in terms of what it offers. And it's it's priced very competitively. And so if you have something that you want to sell, including, by the way, your services, and you want to make it easy to set up and sell, I've been very pleased with Sandal for, for a number of things that I'm doing. One of the things about it that I could never get happening with Gumroad is after you, someone successfully purchases something from you to have it send them to a custom thank you page so that I could set up analytics on my website without having to know JavaScript, which I don't. I'm a uh, JavaScript ignoramus, and that's one of the cool features about Sendal. So someone buys something or signs up for my mentoring program or what have you, Sendal will send them to a custom thank you page, which lets me start to track conversion rate using 
my third pick, which is an analytics program called Heap Analytics. And Heap Analytics packs, in my opinion, I don't know, 50, 70% of the power of, of a very expensive solution like Mixpanel in a much, 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 much easier to use package. So what I like about Heap Analytics is compared to Google Analytics, which kind of drowns you in a fire hose of reports and information, Heap Analytics gives you no information at all unless you go in and specifically set up a report to look at a funnel, which is someone moving from step A to step B and so on. So I really like Heap Analytics as a nice alternative to Mixpanel. And if, you know, if you like me and you make really good money from a, an amazingly tiny amount of web traffic, then uh, you can even use it for free, <laughs> which is nice. So that's my third pick is Heap Analytics. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The Primal Blueprint. I just read the book. I think it sounds really interesting. I am diabetic anyway, and so cutting carbs sounds like a great idea to me. I don't completely buy into the entire premise of some of the paleo-related diets, but they also talk about some of like the uh, biochemistry and things like that involved. And, you know, it makes some sense to me, so I figure I may as well try it. So I'm going to do it for three weeks and see how it goes. So I thought I'd pick it. And if you have any suggestions for recipes or anything else, I would really appreciate your feedback. And yeah, those are my picks. And we'll go ahead and uh, wrap the show, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.